Hey there, ladies, gentlemen, and everyone in between, of course. This is Clifton Duncan. This is Clifton Duncan's podcast. It doesn't need another name when it's this good. So um, my guest today <laughs> is a screenwriter, director, and a novelist who has been working in Hollywood for over two decades. His past projects include the Emmy and Golden Globe-nominated Sleeper Cell on Showtime Network's Kings on NBC, uh, and Nikita Rain in Roswell, New Mexico on The CW. He's published novels as well. He's uh, not a dumb guy. Um, he's published novels such as uh, Mother of the Believers and Shadow of the Swords with Simon and & Schuster. And he says that his goal is to serve and entertain the audience. Imagine that. Uh, not to, quote unquote, subvert its expectations uh, like many in Hollywood. Those are some subtle shots fired there. We may get into why over the course of our conversation. But ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled and honored to welcome the inimitable uh, Cameron Pasha to the Clifton Duncan podcast. How are you, Mr. Pasha? It's wonderful to meet you. Uh, well, I'm delighted to meet you, at least in this capacity. I was a big follower of yours uh, on Twitter until Twitter decided I didn't need to be around anymore and they removed me. So I, I do every now and then come and peek at your uh, at your Twitter feed, even though I can't comment on it. So it's delightful to be able to, to join you on this podcast. And you have the voice for this, my friend, you, you've been gifted with that. <laughs> I guess so. Well, I, you know, it's not, it's not as though I can uh, work in any other capacity as a performer, so I better take what I can get. Um, we'll see how long that lasts. We'll have that conversation. I, you know, I, I, I do want to talk about that perhaps, um, but there's so much that we ground we can cover. Yeah. Um, I first encountered you mm-hmm. through the, through all of these other YouTube channels uh, that which I really really enjoy uh, geeks and gamers I'll shout them out uh, unabashedly geeks and gamers Midnight's Edge which is one of my favorites I think the work they do is so fantastic I'm, I'm and, on them regularly now every Friday so yeah oh amazing well there you go so so catch uh, Cameron on um, on Midnight's Edge but you know for years I have wondered how just how people who are sort of in the mainstream um, entertainment industry like like you um intersect with this new burgeoning sort of alternative media space because what I feel like is that these I, I love I, I love all of these guys and I love all the conversations they that they inspire and I, I made this comparison before but I, I, I feel like it's sort of like pro wrestling now where you have the fans the fan base and the audience or the quote-unquote fandom menace so to speak mm-hmm. they're smarter now than the people who are actually putting out <laughs> putting out um, a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff, and it's not to say there's no good stuff that's being produced right now. That's uh, you know far from it. But uh, at the same time, I was like, well, here's somebody uh, who is in the industry and and seems to check the right boxes. You know, he's he's a Muslim, he's a person of color, um, and yet for some reason, um, and you've talked about this in other interviews where the you know the phone calls kind of stopped at a certain point, and mm-hmm. and um, you've been very outspoken as far as the, the inner politics of Hollywood and some of the um, more socio-political uh, frictions that have been coming out of there. So I guess my first question for you in the, in the small time that I have you is, is I guess I'm wondering about the, the cost of being authentic in an industry that runs on BS, for, <laughs> to be, um, to be quite frank. Well, you hit the, the foundational question, right? You know, when I showed up, I, I moved to LA 20 years ago, a- April, April 2001. I had been a lawyer in New York and I sold my first scripts when I was there and literally just almost by accident. I was like, I'd sent out a couple of scripts to an agent and he's like, I like this. Let me see what I do with it. He sold them and, uh, and my career began and I thought oh, I should do this professionally. Uh, and I moved here and I came here very excited. 
thinking, okay, this is a childhood dream come true. You know, I have a member of the Writers Guild. I've sold a couple of scripts to Paramount. You know, I have an agent. Everything's burgeoning. And for and initially, there was some interest in me as a writer because I was an unusual new voice. I was, like I said, born in Pakistan, raised in Brooklyn, practicing Muslim guy. Uh, at the time, uh, there were really none of us in this town. Uh, I later discovered that I wasn't completely alone. There's a brilliant African-American Muslim writer, Mara Keel who's been very successful. She created Girlfriends and other shows and that. She's very I much in that show. Her world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she's very talented. Uh, and I've met her many times. She, she's lovely. Um, but, you know, she and I were essentially the only Muslims in town and uh, or at least the ones that identified as that. There are a lot of people who are like, yeah, you know, there's, as you know, L.A. has a lot of large creative Persian community. It's a lot of, yeah, I'm Persian, I'm Iranian, and my great-grandfather was Muslim. I don't want to talk about it anymore, right? You know, that kind of people who weren't very interested in that part of their heritage. But for me, I, I'm, I'm a religious believer, right? And so this is something that was something that was very unique to me that I was presenting the town. And I wrote a lot of scripts that had Muslim characters. And that initially got a lot of attention. Uh, but that attention uh, sort of went awry after September 11th. Remember, I arrived before September 11th, mm. 2001. I arrived about six, six months or so before, five months before. And uh, and so after that, uh, a lot of the meetings dried up. And it took me a few years to really get back on track and establish myself in the industry. The big breakthrough was this show that you mentioned, Sleeper Cell, which came out in 2005, 2006, which was uh, a really unique show. It had a Muslim FBI agent as the lead. Uh, Michael Ely, the great actor, played that, and uh, right. and it was about a Muslim FBI agent who infiltrates Al Qaeda and stops a terrorist attack. And cool. so, yeah, this was a time when shows like Twenty Four were the were the global shows worldwide, and the Muslim villain had it's been around for a few decades, but it was really getting intense with the events that had happened, the Iraq War is happening, and so now suddenly we had a Muslim hero, and so that got me a lot of attention, and. You know, New York Times, all these guys wrote articles on me. LA Times had a huge piece about the first major Muslim writer to break through. Mm-hmm. And so I got a lot of attention and then I got a lot of resistance. And the getting that spotlight onto me revealed a lot of what this town really was, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, the, I like to call this town a leafy, LEFI, liberal, except for Islam. Right. <laughs> they're they're, they're left wing. You know, like, like you said, you know, I checked the box. You know, I'm the person of color. You know, I'm the Muslim minority. Right. But yeah, but I'm actually a traditional practicing Muslim who doesn't drink, you know, who has traditional values, uh, who doesn't necessarily go along the woke social agenda. And so that's not something they wanted to promote. And so I started getting all this attention and immediately started getting all this very aggressive pushback because people are like, all right, well, we can't actually let this guy become successful in this town, right? Uh, because... You know, and, and I'll share with you one incident, which is, uh, I won't name the gentleman, but he's a major showrunner who's done a lot of these show, shows that have been accused of being Islamophobic, pro- probably because they kind of are. But, you know, mm. but he's, you know, and he had gotten a lot of bad press about some of his shows that always had Muslim neg- negative Muslim characters. So a friend of mine uh, was working with him and sat, sat down with him and said, hey, you know, you're getting all this bad press. Why, why, don't, you, why don't you hire Cameron Pasha? You know, you know who he is. You, I know you've met him. You know, he could come on your shows and fix some of the n- incorrect representations of Muslims on your shows that are getting all the bad feedback. And this gentleman said to him, and this was fed back to me from the person who heard it, said, I'm never going to hire this Cameron Pasha guy. You know, he's, he's a threat to our narrative. They have a very specific narrative about the Middle East and about the m- Muslim world that the industry wants to promote. He's like, yeah, I know this guy will be able to fix the errors. I like the errors. The errors are intentional. I know mm-hmm. that they're not correct. I know I'm misrepresenting this culture, and I'm doing that because I have an agenda about it. So and that's, so that's, that's, that's what I've experienced, and I've, I've had successes and a lot of failures because of that situation. Well, that's so, that's so fascinating because um, 
you know, I'm, I'm someone who is an atheist. And, you know, as we both know, there's a very, very strong sort of secular atheist push. Um, I mean, I think many would say that a lot of our colleagues mm-hmm. uh, have substituted politics for the, for their religion, but, you know, Correct. perhaps that's another, um, an, that's, another, that's a whole other podcast worth of conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a whole other rabbit hole, but I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm thinking about parallels today, you know, where these people have positioned themselves as champions of people that they claim to be uh, marginalized. And I remember after 9-11, there was this idea that, well, we, we have to be compassionate because of the rise in hatred and spike in hatred against uh, against people of uh, Muslim faith. Um, and of course, us actors, we run on our feelings, we're very sensitive, we, we want to feel things, we want things to be, uh, we care about people, so to speak. Um, that's what they say anyway. And yet they exist within this industry that's putting out these stories deliberately from your from your anecdote. They're put they're deliberately putting out a message which seems to be antithetical to what they what they claim they really want. I, mean, I jotted down the words progressive racism. Oh, um, yeah. I and, and that a lot. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I was wondering if you could talk some more about that, because I, I certainly feel like I've encountered uh, encountered it. And in many ways, I mean, this is the shameful thing to say, but I feel like I've benefited from it. Despite the you know, despite my training background, my years of experience, it's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't need for you to help me get a job. I can, you know, I can do the importance of being earnest. I could do August Wilson. I could do whatever you want me to do on camera because I've spent lots of time and money learning how to do that. And yet, and, yet, and still hmm, say what? As you're a craftsman, this is your skill. You're trained in this. Yes. Well, and, and that's, and that's the thing. And, 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 I love, and I love the fact that speaking of, of craft, I love the fact that you're a, a, a screenwriter and a novelist. You're, you're so deeply enmeshed in story. And hopefully we'll get into that later about the, the importance of stories and, and why we glom on to them and why some of them are so powerful and, and, and endure and why some don't. But, you know, I, I know for myself, um, it's, it's been really, really jarring. You know, I never really worried much about my race until I became an actor. And then, then I'm surrounded by people who claim that they want to be really inclusive and, and yeah, they yeah. push diversity, this, that, and the third. But to me, it's always struck me as very cynical. And just hearing the story that you shared with me, it's like, well, yeah, you know, of course, <laughs> these people don't really believe what they're talking about. They're doing what's marketable. They're doing what they feel will make them um, some some more money. But, um, you know, that this idea of... of um, the 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 veneer of the industry and and the and the illusion and the image and the imagery that the image they want to project versus what's actually going on um you know i i it, it's two different things entirely and i see a lot of people in the public sphere now especially like even among these youtube videos that we see who are making commentaries about like hollywood so to speak and it's like well I mean, some of the stuff is really outlandish. I mean, Hollywood is like, you know, a, a couple of blocks of dirty street, you know, you, you can drive through it in a, in a few minutes and, you know, but there's a, a whole other network and industry that exists. And so it's great that people like you are, are able to come up, but it's like, if you actually tell the truth about what it is, then you get punished for it. Well, I mean, the person who spoke the truth about what this is broadly and uh, then relates to Hollywood is, is my personal icon, Malcolm X. You know, if you go back and listen mm. to his conversation, everything he said was right. I mean, everything he said about, about, Culture was correct, and he was 70 years ahead of time. And so he was very blatant about what he, about liberal racism, progressive racism. He's very on about it. He said, he said, there's a lot of people trying to solve the issue of racism in America, but they never go by the name liberal because they're the ones causing the problem. And, and he said, these are people that want you working, you know, on their plantation. They, you know, they'll convince you 
hey, the, the field is great for you. This is, this is, you know, we're going to really make a, your experience working on the plantation field great for you. And if you really are good, we might let you in the house and, and be a house Negro, right? as, he would, as he would have put it, right? But actually leaving the plantation, no, it's not going to happen, right? We'll kill you, right? And so he was very blunt about this kind of thing. Uh, and it's what we've experienced here, what I've experienced here, which is that this, this savior complex amongst powerful people in Hollywood, the mm-hmm. belief that they are here they tell themselves they're here to protect and help minorities and, and give them. But the moment the minority becomes a threat to their power or has an independent voice or can doesn't need them, they become an adversary. And they become an adversary that has to be crushed because the entire system is based on savior and saved. It is not based on equality. Wow. Yeah, there's a... Um... <clears throat> what was I going to say? Uh, there's a... Oh yeah, uppity. That's that's the term I was looking for. You you become a, an. Uppity I've actually had that term used at me by a Hollywood person. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm, they they use that word. They, they can't stop their tongue. It comes out of their mouth. Well, and see, and here's and here's the thing that 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 gets me is that people like me who have opinions that that run counter to leftist orthodoxy or or that clash with it, and you know, just that just as you said, the more self possessed I came uh, as a black person, as a masculine man, or at least as masculine as you can get. Um, in in uh, in the entertainment industry, the more alienated that I began to feel, and it's not like necessarily a social thing. It's just that I would get these scripts, and I'm very very fortunate in that I had you know will have great representation. I auditioned quite a bit. I've worked a lot, and so you get these auditions and you read these scripts, and it's just like, I mean, the, the most recent example that I gave um, was uh, I call him one of the Dick Wolves, uh, one of these uh, procedural shows. And I read it and someone actually, and people pay attention because, because I mentioned this on a live stream um, a week or two ago. And someone said, I actually know the show you're talking about because I saw that, but, (laughs) but uh, you know, I I saw this audition and it was a great, the role appeared to be a really great fit, you know, a doctor, compassionate, smart, used to be a cop. um, And he's doing this, he's in the scene where he is nursing a sort of interviewing a 13 year old uh, young black kid who's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. involved in a gang and or getting involved in gang life and I was like this you know this is a great thing that's right up my alley this is what I could this is really what I could do Mm -hmm. and uh, then I got to like the last two pages and it it became this story about how this white female doctor I think it's a white woman doesn't mm-hmm. understand how black people are underdiagnosed for sickle cell, but they it's that they're only undiagnosed because they're black and they, you know, as opposed to people with cystic fibrosis uh, who are mostly white. And so they get, and it just completely tanked the whole scene for me and, and, and it tainted the project. I don't want to work on something like that, you know, because like going back to what you were saying, what's happening now is that all these people, and I don't want to name names because some of them are alumni of the school that I, the, of the program that yeah, I went there's to. There's no reason to name names and because there's too many to name anyway. <laughs> exactly. But, <laughs> it's, it's, like, but, it's, but it, it's people who would call me a sellout. But as you said, it's like, well, you're the one right now who is a mouthpiece for yeah. the, for this ideology that really is doing harm to your people. And, you know, and, do you have any idea what they're probably saying about you behind closed doors, what the bean counters, the investors, the producers, executives, do you really think they have respect for you? I had this conversation on a show. I won't mention which show, but on a show where there was a lot of mistreatment of minorities going on. And it was a show that had publicly gone out of the way to say, look how we have so many minorities on our staff and and they'd, they'd actually done PR around this. Right. But all the minorities were poorly treated. And, uh, and so I was a, 
relatively high level person on the show. I won't get him. I won't reveal which one it was. And I sat down with the showrunner and I said, look, we have a problem here. This was after an incident where an, uh, an African-American woman had been fired. And I knew she had been framed. Uh, for, she had been blamed for something that happened. Uh, and it had been a white woman that was, a, uh, that, you know, was well-liked by the showrunner who had actually done it and put the blame on the other. I said, look, hmm. we need to have a conversation. Yeah, we, we, I said, we need to have a conversation about what's happening on this show, right? And I was very blunt to this person. I said, very bluntly, I said, you know, this is, you know, this is pure racism that's happening on this show. And I want you to understand that this is, I'm, as a person of color, I'm watching how the minorities are being treated here. And I said something which made him bristle and turn red when I said this. I said, I noticed that you will only hire, when it comes to, you talk about, aside from you just fired a black woman. So you'll, the only African-Americans you're going to hire are black women or effeminate men. You will never hire a masculine black man. I said, an Urkel, you're comfortable with that. But a black man with a deep voice and a sense of self-confidence, never going to be on this show. He turned red with anger. Number one, it's true, but I hit too close a nerve, right? Because he himself is just a, another Hollywood writer, another weak beta guy. You know, all these Hollywood writers I work with are sort of weak dudes, right? Yes. They're, they're weak, weak guys. Yes. They're nerdy, geeky losers. They don't have any self-respect. And the last thing they want to see is a confident black man who their wife might find attractive <laughs> in the office, right? I'm going to be as blunt as possible because I was as blunt with this person because I knew my time on the show was over. I knew when I was going to have this conversation, I was finished and I was finished. Right. And uh, and but I, I pretty much gave that as my resignation speech. I want to I want to have a conversation with you, with you. And I know this is not going to go well for me, but I need to say these things to you. Well, that's so that's so interesting. You say that because, you know, I remember when I first started out, the whole conversation was about, well, the only the only roles available for actors, uh, for black mm-hmm. actors are, you know, you, you might have the exception here and there with a Lawrence Fishburne or a Denzel Washington, but it's mostly thugs, killers, criminals. And, so and even and so Denzel forth. wasn't given his Oscar for Malcolm X. He was given it as a thug, right? They right, couldn't give it right. for Malcolm X. They had to give right. it to as a corrupt cop. Which is fascinating. But yeah. now I find, and, you know, I don't know if you've seen this, this uh, trend as well, but, I mean, I've noticed it uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the comic book channels that I follow, but mm-hmm. now there's this thing where every Black male character has to be either perfect sort of like a ken doll not smooth between the legs so to speak metaphorically magical black man in new form yes right right or, or they have to be effeminate in some way and and the thing Cinderella, is the fairy godmother is a black man who is uh, gender fluid and here's the thing like, and, and there is a conversation to be had i mean i i for one am dismayed and disheartened by the there is an homophobic attitudes are not uncommon among black Americans. And I wish that that weren't the case. It is a Um, cultural issue. It's, it's a real thing. Yeah. At at the same time, uh, it it goes back to this idea of these people who are quote unquote progressive, who are, who are pushing out these ideas or, or these, this imagery um, about black men and frankly about black women. It it, it is a reaction. It is a reaction to an effort going in American culture to emasculate black men. Since the first guy was brought off the boat from West Africa, right? Well, see, the first thing they need to do is cut that guy's balls off, right? And this is a profound cultural thing. So one can understand why there may be resistance and anger towards feminizing black men and why there may be these social issues of homophobia you're talking about because it's a response to something that was intentionally done. Well, you know, it's just interesting because for me, they they claim to be the champions and the voice of this one community, but they keep going down pathways that this community doesn't really, I mean, black 
black people, I mean, obviously I'm speaking generally, but you know, a, a regular ass black person, you know, you, you talk to him on in Atlanta, it could be your Uber driver. It could be someone who's working at, you know, at the, uh, at the local quick trip uh, supermarket or whatever. Um, you know, they, they, they don't really, they're not really with this stuff and they, and they guard their, their identity very, very strongly, you know, especially the idea of a black man and what a man is the black women I talk to, they don't like these Hollywood motherfuckers. They don't, you know, it's like Idris Elba is it. And, you know, they want a man. He's very pretty. He's a, he's a very pretty guy. I mean, I, <laughs> he's, he's a good looking but guy. But he's exactly. also, but he also has a great brio. He's very masculine. He has a great. Oh, yeah, energy, he's charismatic. You know, about I mean, he's a man. There's no. And like, and well, that's the thing. And, and yet, you know, so they, so they glom on to people like that. But, you know, a lot of these more. I guess softer males, they you know, or or they're or you know, comedy is always safe, right? It's always yeah, safe. like I said, the Urkel phenomenon, right? Yeah, you know, or it's it's just there's these divergent sort of realities happening where on one end it's like, well, we we are champions of these people, but we're going to keep on creating stories that don't appeal to you and don't speak to you because they're not whatsoever. people. Like I said, this is this is an effort. It's exactly what Malcolm X said. This is the effort to keep them, everyone on the plantation and keep the social structure the way it is, but put a nice face on it, a nice loving face of a savior on it, rather than the guy with the, with the whip. If you rebel against it, the guy with the whip comes out, right? That Because the people I've worked with, it's they are not, I'm going to make a generalization, but the people I've worked with that are the most politically agitated on these issues are all generally bad people. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, there's a correlation. There are people who have a lot of pathologies, who have a lot of self-esteem issues, and use politics as a form of control and uh for others minorities and elsewise i mean so it's this is my experience of it so it's not these they, they have no intention of empowering the black community mm. it's exactly why uh spike lee did not take one dollar from hollywood to make his movie malcolm x and he said if if i were to make this at a studio because studios were interested if i was to make the studio it's going to end up being a movie about the white reporter that follows around malcolm x and, and writes his life story right <laughs> And, and he ended up getting Oprah and, and other major figures to donate. It was literally an independently financed film. And right. at the end of the movie, you'll see the credits of all the people that financed it, right? And that's the only way you could make that movie authentically. You know, then you have something by Michael Mann who makes Muhammad Ali, right? He makes that, that with Will Smith. That's a Hollywood production. I know Muhammad Ali's family. I know his daughter, Mariam, his eldest daughter, very well. We're good friends. Mm. And let's just say that the Muhammad Ali family was unhappy with that movie. Right. Because it doesn't capture his spirituality. It doesn't capture his core. ethic. you walk away from that movie learning two things. He's a good boxer and he likes women. You don't know why, what motivates him to stand up to the United States government, what motivates him to throw away his uh, his world champion and get it back. Right. His medal. And so you don't understand that guy because Hollywood doesn't want you to understand that guy. Mm. Well, it makes me think about I mean, you mentioned faith and, you know, I I mentioned to you offline that one of the recurring themes in in my conversations, I, you know, I've been on this search lately since I became more vocal mm-hmm. um, about what is the meaning of art? Why do we do what we do? Why does any of this matter? And again, I keep talking to people, you know, especially given all with the backdrop of the things that are going on in the world right now. I, I, it's hard for me as someone who can, who is an atheist and at least used to um, consider himself to be in the world of rationality and, and logic and reason and all, and, you know, all these things that we pat ourselves on the back about, but I, I, I lack the vocabulary. I find I, I lack the, whatever sensitivities I would need to be able to articulate clearly what I feel is going on, which I can't really articulate any other way than to say there's some kind of spiritual death happening. And I feel like we all kind of feel that I had a conversation 
with a wonderful young uh, woman named uh, Salome Sibone mm-hmm. um, recently. And we were both talking about how it feels as though there was a cutoff point in the late 90s slash, you know, maybe mid 2000s, maybe maybe 2009, 2010 is like the the tail end of this cutoff point where like things were actually kind of cool and kind of decent. And we, we were getting good movies and good music. And then all of a sudden it, it sort of um, began to tank and, you know, it might be the rise of social exact- media. You know, right. And I'll it, tell you why when we're ready. I'll tell you why 2009 was a pivotal. We'll get to that because that's when my career took a hit. Yeah. Well, interesting. But, you know, it, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to get around it because it feels like there's a, there's a cultural malaise or something going on where it's like, you know, maybe, I mean, I love the Marvel movies personally. You know, I, I went on that journey. Yep. Um, I love them a lot. Um, but I also feel like people just in general, we're sick of all these, you know, these soulless reboots, these weird, these weird um political uh, left turns that, that are happening with these popular franchises. Uh, it seems like not much original is happening. It's not inspiring people um, in the way that, that perhaps older works did. And it's like, is it, is it that, that Hollywood or the people that are, that are attracted to the industry, is it because they are aggressively um, anti-religious or secular? And that's, and that's leading to this nihilism and a sort of hollowed out, sense of looking at the world that leads to subsequently hollowed out art is that what, what part of it is because you're very much um you're very much very much a man of of, of faith and uh, you know i know that power is the people of faith that, that i've met in my life a have been the most even keeled which is hilarious considering um you know all these neurotic uh, uh we're the ones who are supposed to be irrational right and yet we're, 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 we're right. they've lost their effing minds <laughs> meanwhile you know all my christian friends are like you know just have courage and pray and and just have faith that things will get better. I'm like, that's a nice message. Uh, it's but, a but I mean, and, and it's yeah, a paradigm that makes, you know, again, I'm not saying any religion in particular, but the paradigm that life has meaning, which is what you talked about. You're not looking for meaning, right? Uh, right. You know, and so the paradigm that life has meaning, that inherently is a faith statement. Because that mm. you don't know that life has meaning, you know. You know, a, 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 a nihilist could argue, would argue that it doesn't, right? That is, that's the idea of meaning as a human construct, right? That was what they would argue. But the very, but I would suggest that it is programmed into the human condition to search for meaning from which religion originates, right? Which is an, a way to give form and ritual and purpose and community around the search for meaning, uh, and that doesn't negate the fact that I actually believe there is meaning and there is a subjective reality. But I'm just talking about the human effort to understand it. So, yes, but the interesting thing you raised about uh, where we are, most of the people in Hollywood I know are secularists. A lot of them are atheists. Some of them are very aggressively atheistic and hostile to faith. Mm-hmm. And Hollywood is always like that. The difference is that the founders of Hollywood, the guys who built the studios, you know, the Louis Mayers and those guys, they were a lot of them were probably not that religious, I would suggest. But they knew the market. They knew the audience was. So even in the silent films, you're, you know, yes, Cecil B. DeMille making the Ten Commandments as a silent film movie, right? You got all these epic movies from the Bible because he knew the audience wanted that. And they just wanted to make money. Their, their, their God was money. And they knew the audience wanted that. Mm-hmm. And so what we started watching in the recent generation is people have just dis- the, the current generation of sort of smug people at top of Hollywood who aren't the entrepreneurs who built Hollywood from nothing are disconnected from the audience's thing. They assume people are going to pay for anything. And so they get to now share their nihilistic worldview, which many of the founders of Hollywood had that nihilistic worldview. They just said, I don't believe in anything. I just believe in money and I'm going to make it. These people want to believe in a God and Jesus and Muhammad. Give them what they want. I don't care. Let's get their money. We don't even have that anymore. 
It also it, it seems so short sighted to me because in my in my estimation, a good story, uh, you know, I mean, I think about It's a Wonderful Life. It's one of my favorite films of all time. I mean, it literally starts out with angels in heaven talking. You know, a pivotal plot point centers around the visitation uh, of a guardian angel to Jimmy Stewart. And it's it's and you don't see the angels until about an hour and a half into the movie. No, you don't. <laughs> you know, that's the amazing. Thing. That's how confident that story is. Yeah. You know, and, and I just I think to myself, you know, I, I cry. I ugly cry at the end of this movie every okay, single time watching I it. watch it. And I don't believe in God, but I, I but. I'm so moved by the story. And I think to myself, how many other It's a Wonderful, oh, your heart potential, it's a wonderful Lives are being shunted out of Hollywood, are being kept out of Hollywood right now and are failing? And maybe that's one of the, the reasons that, that, you know, increasingly, especially in a, a, a world where we have other kinds of entertainment, people are turning to video games, they're going down uh, YouTube rabbit holes, as we both discovered, um, they're not connecting as much with a broader audience. And, you know, I guess for my thing, you know, if I can serve as an ambassador, you know, not, not all actors are, are crazy and, and hate you. Um, but it seems like the industry kind of, I mean, I guess what you're saying is that it's just, it's about what's trendy and, and what will make money. It's, and it's, it's not um, even it's, that because it's not even, it's not even that. Company. What it is is that mm. if it was about what was trendy, then they would still be focused on the audience. It's about the, mm. it's this smug generation of, you know, the grandchildren of the Louis Mayors, right, who, who are running this town, who haven't worked a day in their lives and have gotten everything through nepotism and connections and heritage, right? And so these are people that never had to struggle like the founders of Hollywood did, who were right. essentially, you know, shoe salesmen from Brooklyn who came to L.A. when it was nothing and built up an industry, right? And so these are, so these are the smug third-generation people running the industry. And they are burned out. They've had too much money all their lives and not enough purpose, and so now they're using the power that they have inherited essentially to spread that nihilism that's in their hearts to everybody else. It's an effort to actually redefine culture according to their own emptiness, which is what we saw in Star Wars and other things, which is an effort. This whole subversion thing is an effort to break down the very values that their grandparents used to create the industry, right, and have built this once really wonderful country. And it's an effort to subvert that. And that, that's the effort that comes from lazy, dissatisfied, meandering, rich folk who don't know what the purpose of their own lives is anymore. And they don't want you to have that purpose either because it irritates them to see you be happy-go-lucky with your hero, you know, to believe in someone like a Luke Skywalker, right, or Lando Calrissian. You know, they don't want you to have these heroes anymore. So they want to take that away because they want you to be as empty as they are. You know, I, I said this again in a recent um Recent conversation, uh, <laughs> recent conversation uh, with uh, with Salome uh, Sibane. You know, I said these are cynical, hollow people, and um, th this is the kind of work that they're that they're putting out. I guess the the, the question becomes: it, it seems so confusing to people, but why is it? And I know this question pops up frequently, and um, and and other uh, genre channels, uh, you know, in, in these sort of nerd discussions in YouTube. Why why does it appear that these people who are inside the industry? Why is it that they don't seem to understand that it's completely unsustainable to, for their business model. Because they don't see themselves as business people. They see themselves as prophets of an idea. It's a nihilistic idea, right? They are, like I said, their grandparents were business people. Their parents were business people. There's that old Chinese saying that the cycle of wealth is three generations. The first generation creates it. The second generation manages it. The third generation squanders it. That's such an old Chinese saying. Look at the first. The first generation of Hollywood is essentially the golden age of Hollywood. They were talking about, let's start with 
post-silent film, the talkies, essentially start in the 1930s, right? So it's a 40 years of those people. So 30 to 1930, 1970s considered the golden age of Hollywood. That's the first generation, right? The 1970 to 2010 is the second generation where you still have people making great movies, right? But they're not the founders. The studios are not part of a big corporation, whatever. And the kids, Louis Mayer's kids are now running the system, right? But they still want to make money, right? They, they, they watch their parents build the system up and they want to do it. The third generation now starts at 2010, which is where we are, right? We talked about 2000. Right, third generation yeah. begins there. That's exactly when you see the collapse of storytelling, which the first two generations understood was the basis of, of the money. Third generation didn't earn it. They didn't even watch it being earned. They just lived it. So they don't know that they, they don't know that they have a market. That's so crazy to me. And, you know, and you mentioned the uh, collapse of storytelling. Thank you so much for offering me a, a, a segue into this, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I, one of the, one of the, I guess, part of my search for meaning right now is what is the power of stories? Why is it that some stories endure? Why is it that, you know, for instance, um, I'd say the, the Bible has, has, has endured for so long. Why is it that we still perform Shakespeare's plays hundreds of years after they were written? Why is it I can pick up a Chekhov play or, um, you know, or any of these Russian novels, honestly, and be so moved by them? But at the same time, in a contemporary sense, why is it that I, I mean, when I saw Captain America Civil War, and it's, so, it's, kind of, it's such a nerd moment, but I, you know, there was a moment uh, where I recognized that I am sitting here in an almost empty theater at 11 a.m. with my middle-aged friend. We are both adults, adult males, watching all these costumed superheroes. Um, it, you know, and I, I, I acknowledge that thought. Where I'm like, this is really silly and ridiculous. But at the same time, you know, that 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 just that one simple scene where it's it's uh, Steve Rogers. He ha- he has the hole on that helicopter, and he's not going to let his buddy Bucky get out of there. And I said, there's so much in that one image that I was so keyed in on. I got so emotional about it. I'm, I'm so emotionally invested in these stories. Why, how, what, what separates as someone who's a screenwriter and a novelist, someone who's deeply versed in story craft and has been successful at it. What is it that separates something that's so powerful that, that galvanizes and changes an industry like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And, you know, maybe you could talk about the path they're going down because it, it seems like they're going to be like, well, we're going to take all we did and throw it in the garbage and set it on fire. Um, why is it that those stories catch on, but then say, you know, maybe the, the, the a rival comic franchise universe, shall we say, um, d- doesn't endure? You know, what I, do you know what I'm getting at? Why? What is I know exactly what you're getting at. So, so Clifton, actually, you know, I have a Patreon and I actually wrote a lengthy article about this on my Patreon and is part of a broader article I'm writing, which is about my screenwriting method. And I talk about in that article on my Patreon, I talk about how, why religious stories especially survive over the, over thousands of years. And I use the Bible and the Quran as an example. I'm a Muslim. I use the Quran as well. I use the Bible and the Quran. And I won't go into the full depth of the argument, but the central thing of it is that stories, especially religious stories, which are, which have, survived thousands and created cultures and civilizations, they understand the human journey is how we see ourselves, right? And we see ourselves, inevitably the idea of we're all, there's a phrase that I learned in the study of religion college, which is the liminal phase, which is in between one reality and another. And human beings are always feel that they're trapped between the past and the future, right? And they want to navigate that. They know the, the, the legacy of the past, the guilt and the mistakes and hope for the future. So any story that helps human beings figure out how to move from their feeling of being entrapped between two moments in time towards something 
will will work towards something that is fulfilling. And religious stories in particular understand this. Uh, but this is and that and it's been encapsulated. I think Joseph Campbell talked about the many faces of the hero, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea of the hero again is about the journey. It's about transformation from different phases. You know, Luke Skywalker starts off as a whiny farm kid and ends up becoming the the savior of the galaxy and ends up redeeming his father, right? I mean, there's many layers. Everything, you know, he has to constantly, each movie, he keeps growing. He never stops growing as a hero and facing challenges and failures. And the great stories understood that. The great Hollywood stories understood that. Uh, The effort by this current crowd of sort of nihilists who are in charge of the industry or have been for some time, I think it's changing now, but have been for some time, or at least since 2010, has been an effort to subvert the whole issue of heroism. Again, it comes from this sense of people who didn't build their own power are afraid of losing it, right? Mm-hmm. Louis Mayer was not afraid of losing everything. He lost everything when he moved from Brooklyn to, to LA. He had to start all over, right? So these people were raised with wealth and power and they're afraid of anyone taking it away from them. So the idea of inspiring others to become heroes might mean that somebody might come, especially a confident masculine black man might take their job from them. So you have to take the concept of heroism away from people. And so that's why movies like like The Last Jedi and other horrific movies that have come out recently have subverted the concept of heroism because it is actually an elite's effort to control. I'm going to give you an example of that from another culture that I experienced directly. So I went, after I worked on the TV show Nikita, which you mentioned, uh, which is about a female spy, uh, I went to China. I worked in Beijing. I was invited there to come develop a female spy series in China for the Chinese audience. I was like, oh, sure, I'm going to do that. I've never been to Beijing. So I went there and I worked with Chinese writers for months and helped them develop the series that ended up premiering on their version of YouTube, IKE, and ended up having something like 700 million viewers, which is like normal for China. China. So it was great. But the pivotal moment that happened there was we ended up having a 10-hour discussion where I was guiding the the, the Chinese writers, working through translators to figure out the arc of the character, this heroine, essentially like Nikita, she's a spy. And like Nikita, she discovers that she's working for the bad guys and not the good guys. and, And what does she do then? Right. And so we got to that pivotal moment where she realizes she's working for the bad guys that her bosses are the criminals. She thought they were the heroes. They're not. She has a moment in the story we developed where she could basically fake her death and escape and just put it all behind her. Right. And I said, OK, but of course, she's not going to do that because she's going to come back and the bad guys are still going to do their evil thing, which is going to hurt the Chinese people. So she has to stop her former bosses. Right. And then one of the producers I was working with who had been trained at USC, the Chinese gentleman who had been trained at USC said, that's not going to work. I mean, what do you mean that's not going to work? It's like Chinese people don't believe that a Chinese person would risk their own lives to save innocent people. I was like, what are you talking about? Because that's so archetypal. That's what a hero is. The definition of a hero is someone that will risk their own safety for people that they don't need to help. That's what a hero is, right? They could, this is what Han Solo said. You can just take off with me. Forget these people. This is suicide. Just come. But Luke says, well, I'm going to save these people that I I just met two days ago when I landed on this planet. I'm going to save them, right? That's a hero. And so he's like, well, no, but the communists have taught us, again, the communists have taught, taken away the concept of heroism. Mao had taken that away from the culture. So I said, okay. I asked the Chinese writers. Now, the producer is arguing this with me. And I turned to the Chinese writers and I asked, I said, do you understand what I'm saying? The writers did. And they said to me, ancient Chinese literature, pre-communist Chinese literature, pre-1940s Chinese literature had the normative idea of heroes, right? Because it's archetypal to the human condition. And it, the, the communists, the, the CCP had, had suppressed that storytelling. The archetype of the hero had been taken away. And that is why they were watching American movies. 
That is why they were watching American movies to fill that hole of the need for a hero because they couldn't get it from their own cinema. Right. And, and, I, and that's when I convinced the guy, try it. Just try it. Just give the audience what, it, what you're, they're not getting in Chinese cinema. Give them a hero that will risk their own lives when they don't have to. And then the show became a massive success because they got the archetypal need for the hero that the communists had taken away from them. Well, that's, you know, it's so interesting, too. And, it, and just watching how animated you become when talking about that concept, you know, it, it has to be deeply rooted in us. And, yeah. you know, and one of my one of, you know, going back to Joseph Campbell, I mean, mm-hmm. something else that he said in one of the, you know, and if people can find it on uh, platforms that aren't YouTube, video platforms that aren't YouTube, but his entire series of interviews about the power of myth, are, you know, you, you can watch these interviews. Um, and he references Star Wars, which I love, but he also said, you know, we, we, we retreat, not, not retreat, that's probably not the right word, but we go to stories in order to immerse ourselves in the experience of being alive, which is such a, an interesting kind of, of, of thing to say. But yes, the, the, uh, the idea of, and I've noticed this in comics as well, it's like these people don't know what a, what a hero is in, anymore, a hero is anymore. And I, I sense that very keenly. I mean, I discovered Luke Skywalker. I discovered um, the Indiana Jones trilogy and the Star Wars trilogy, you know, around the same time when I was a kid, went crazy, lost my mind. I wanted to be these guys. You know, I'm stealing my mother's uh, curtain rods and having fake lightsaber fights with kids in the neighborhood, you know, and denting them up. And she would get really angry with me. You know, it, 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 <laughs> we've it, it all was done something... that, by the way. We all have our stick that was the lightsaber. Right, yeah, you know, it's, but it's something to aspire to. But now, you know, what do these other people have to aspire to nowadays? And and, you know, since you brought it up, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole because I'm I, I, I joked to a friend earlier today that I'm becoming one of those people who's like, man, these goddamn commies everywhere. And yeah. there is a clip of John Wayne from decades ago where he's saying, you know, the communists are they're infiltrating Hollywood. And again, these are the same people. I want to work on something, maybe a longer piece, but or mm-hmm. maybe mini documentary. I don't know, but about people who I call neo McCarthyists. Mm-hmm. And these are people who will swear up and down about how wrong it was about maybe like, you know, uh, uh, Elia Kazan and, and him naming names. And they'll talk about uh, how it was wrong for people to be persecuted for their political beliefs. But I'm like, well, now you people are the McCarthyists. You are the, you are the people who are trying to name and shame people if they voted for Trump or whatever and, and kick them out of the industry, get them blacklisted. And um, well, because, because idea, communism is inherently you know, it, it's about utilizing arguments just to achieve its objectives. It's not about any kind of actual moral principle. Right. right? Well, well and, here's, <laughs> and here's the thing, because because you mentioned communism and, you know, it, it's one of those words where, you know, we don't really say it in polite Western society. And I think there, there is a I totally agree. We do need to. And there's a huge blind spot. I, I, I got this collection of Arthur Miller plays recently. And mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you know the writer Lynn Nottage, she two time Pulitzer winner. Um, I don't know it. I'm sorry. Oh, she, she, most of her work is in the theater, but I think she's brilliant. And she definitely has politics that, that diverge from ours, but, you know, and they inform her writing, but they don't stifle it. She's a brilliant, brilliant writer. But she wrote the foreword to this collection of Arthur Miller plays. And Arthur Miller, for those who don't know, Death of a Salesman, The Crucible, probably uh, is two most well-known works. Well, the, we're living in The Crucible right now. I mean, The Crucible's well, alive in front you of know, us. Well, well, he was writing these plays. That, well, you know, The Crucible, you know, was a reaction to, um, to the whole sort of uh, Red Scare. But but Lynn Nottage is writing about uh, about how Arthur Miller became a playwright for the people. And but she had this sentence where she said, well, in the 50s, there was this paranoia about communism for some reason. And I'm thinking to myself, this entire industry has this weird blind spot 
against communism. I don't know why or, or what it's about, we, but these, but these got, people have this. Mao killed system. sixty million of his own people. You know, <laughs> followed by Stalin, who killed maybe forty million of his people. I mean, this is a really immoral system that really destroyed the planet for a century. <laughs> hey, Jim Carrey says that we should go. That we should all be socialists. You know, and and just, but, but you just know embrace why? it. But you know why? It's it's very simple. Communists have two groups. They have a rich elite that controls everything and useful idiots who are their soldiers. There's no middle class, right, of normal people, right? And so Hollywood is structured that way. You've got Jim Carrey makes $20 million a movie, or at least he used to, right? You've got those people at the top who are living in their, in their gated homes. Last year, when we had a lot of the rioting here, the politically-based rioting in Los Angeles, and I had two friends who moved out of, out of Hollywood, the Hollywood neighborhood, because the building was on fire. I mean, they had National Guard there, and there were people setting fire to the place, right? And so all allegedly screaming out for Black Lives Matter, right? That was their mantra, but they were destroying black neighborhoods and destroying black businesses, even here in LA. And so I went and I met with a showrunner, a major top show, I won't name him, very nice gentleman, a top showrunner who invited me to his house, which was unusual because, you know, he was very nervous about health issues, whatever. So come on over. So we said that, and he was telling me what in his beautiful house, in his gated community with his security guards, how he supported the riots, in Hollywood, because it was time for black people to rise up and take back their powers. Like, if those writers came here, your guards would shoot every one of them. I mean, I, I, but again, he liked burning down black people's neighborhoods for social justice as long as they stayed over there, right? And he, and he had his guards. So he was, he is without even realizing it a communist, right? Because mm-hmm. he is there, an elite guy, and he has these useful idiots who are setting fire to things. And now those useful idiots are saying, well, I don't want to take this thing in my arm, and now they're the enemy. Right? And so, and so that, that's how communism works. And Hollywood has always been structured with a rich elite and useful idiots. Yeah. Well, I think about, you know, writers of the past. Uh, one one um, pretty well-known example is um, mm-hmm. George Bernard Shaw, the, Blit- sure. the, the British playwright who, uh, yeah. you, know, w- w- you know, he supported Hitler. He was a socialist and also a racist. But, um, you know, it doesn't stop um, graduate programs excuse me, like my own, from assigning you work. From and his, and um... he, had, he actually, you know, he had a lot to say about the world that was accurate. You know, I'm not saying his support for, for fascism was accurate. I'm saying that his commentary on a lot of the human condition was accurate. He's a very, like, very, very smart man. Very yeah. smart man. Um, but at the same time, it's just weird how you see these sort of, I mean, I'll use that term as well, these useful idiots. They're, they're writers, they're artists. They're a part of, you know, the so-called intelligentsia. They end up in these fields. And, and you know, I try to explain to people, it's hard to, to explain it without sounding like some sort of conspiracy theorist. But the fact of the matter is you have this small cluster of people who share this ideology, but they have a disproportionate amount of power and influence on, on the rest of our wider culture and society. And um, I, I don't, and so I, I get sort of irritated by, um, I mean, I get that there is a hostility against any sort of um, heterodox opinion. I mean, I remember I was doing a rehearsal for a concert. This was in uh, New York a couple of years ago, back when I was still allowed to be a free citizen there. Mm-hmm. And we were on a break uh, at one point. And of course, you know, uh, Trump had broken everyone's brains. And so everyone had to talk about politics 24 so seven. It never got tiring. It never got old, Cameron, let, let me assure you. Um, but we're on this break. And at some point, you know, I made a joke about Joe Biden and someone else chimed in and was was going on and on. And they, and they said at some point, you know, and then there's those brain dead independents. I don't know what they're thinking. And I'm thinking to myself, this man just secondhand referred to me as brain dead because 
Ironically, I do not blindly swallow and regurgitate whatever the Democrats or the uh, the mainstream press tells you're, me. You're not a party line person. You, you're you're coming to opinions. Of, you know, and, and 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 to me, I guess my confusion is that these are the kind of people I would think. That, like, since when do we not want our artists to be controversial? Since when do we demand that our artists uh, conform and toe the line and and not speak out and not sort of ruffle feathers and, and, and go against the grain a little bit. But, um, but the broader point is that, you know, you see this, um, you see this hostility against even like moderate or centrist or independent sort of uh, uh, thinkers. And it's like, well, yeah, of course, if I were more conservative leaning, then I, I would have my own secret uh, friends of Abe sort yeah, of society. Even being moderate is, is too right wing nowadays. I mean, so yeah. They, 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 they actually do say that now. Like you, you're basically a, a, you're a incrementalist Nazi. and there's a threat to all these new words I'm learning. Incrementalist. I'm learning. This word. Yeah. It's just, you know, and, 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 and so I guess, um, I come to the point now where I'm like, why would I, why would I as an actor even want to work with any of these people anymore, especially after the past year, the way that they've acted and uh, the way that they behave, the way that they, you know, I'm sitting there here looking at restaurant owners and gym owners and, you know, people fighting tooth and nail against their, their local and sometimes now their federal government in order to keep their livelihoods alive. And yet here, like you were saying before, these pampered, privileged, pretentious people, the PPP uh, loans who, you know, they, 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 it's weird because you live in New York, you know what the struggle and the hustle is, and yet you're allowing these pinhead officials and bureaucrats to, to tell you that you're not essential, even though you're an artist in New York City, one of the oh, cultural well, the centers first of the universe. When they use that word, the, the essential workers, there's nothing more communist than that. Who the hell is determining that? The Politburo <laughs> is determining yes, yes. that. I mean, we're all essential. Every one of our jobs is essential. Society determines what is essential, right? You know, and these morons who were out there, especially our, our Hollywood elite friends, our PPP friends, throughout much of history, our work was considered non-essential by by the snobbish wealthy classes, right? They would look down upon the theater and look down upon the arts, right? While at the same time longing to be part of it, right? So it's that the the unmasking of, of the of many of my colleagues and my friends in this industry over the last 18 months has been heartbreaking to realize that they never were liberals they were always were totalitarians they yeah, always yeah. were communists they were just waiting for their moment they were so, just waiting for their moment to have power over other people and they got it well so so then it begs the question that you talk about the unmasking because i know for myself i'm looking at everything going on right now and um i mean it's sort of tangentially related to art mm-hmm. and what we're talking about yeah. but you know i people people have been very kind, you know, I've been very vocal on, on Twitter and other platforms about, um, you know, my personal health decisions and Mm -hmm. how it's negatively impacted my life, despite the fact that I've already recovered from this thing. But, you know, my, I think to myself, uh, you know, James Baldwin has that quote in fire next time I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, you know, why would I want to integrate into a house on fire? Why would I want to be on, um, why would I want to be in a rehearsal studio? Why would I want to be on set with people who were so willing and so, just just to let it all go and to and to let it go away and at the same time these are people who um a year ago were sending me messages about how sorry they felt for me because of my skin color and how hard yeah, my life was you're be. eternally now, oppressed and you know but, it's a, but, you well, can't now, breathe yes okay but, but now in cities like new york for instance um people who look like me who overwhelmingly voted for joe biden by the way not for the not for orange uh, orange hitler um, and they won't address this, but like now you, you're, you're complaining. You want to be a more anti-racist institution. And by the way, 
I have never gotten any special recognition for all the work that I've done as a black performer being non-traditionally cast and like having the kind of career that I have had. I never asked for any of it, but you know, but yet, and I've never been excluded. I've always been, um, I've always been supported and encouraged. And yet I'm, I'm told in 2020 that all of a sudden it's a, it's an, it's a racist theater industry or a racist uh, industry. I mean, you know, you, you testified as to why it actually is, but it's not the reason that we're being told, but it's, um, but now they're excluding people from the audience who look like you and I because of their own personal medical choices. And they don't seem to care about that. And on top well, of that, well, I, well I their see- view is if you if you ever actually nail down, certainly amongst the Hollywood crowd, then the, their true race of crowd. Well, it's just these black people are ignorant. You know, they're they're dumb people. They don't know the truth. It's not. It's not, they don't have access. They don't they're have right. enough information. I'm like, well, no, you pull them back. It's like, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Okay. So. But let's, I want to clarify. And I say, I just want to clarify. So they're dumb people. I get that's what you're claiming, right? Okay, and and that's why you don't want them because they don't need to have an ID to vote because you know it's hard for them to get an ID to vote, right? In the modern world where you need ID for everything, it's hard for them. But the but just a reminder, you need an ID to get this thing in your arm, right? You need an ID for that, right? And so so how does that work? There's no logic to this except that it is pure power play. This is the crucible. This is this is you know this is. It's not just America, it's the dark side of the human condition, which is the Salem witch trials. There's a part of us, there's a pathological part of the human condition that is a bully, that enjoys hurting other people to establish a social hierarchy. And Hollywood is part of that. There's no logical reason to it. It's coming out of a primordial need to be at the top of the pecking order. That's all it is. Well, it makes me think about... um of all things clown class and uh, i think everyone should take clown for a year but and it's not people hear the word clown they think of ronald mcdonald but no there's a whole there's a whole art um art form around it if people want to look up a a genius clown look up someone like a bill Irwin, uh you know one of the most brilliant clowns uh, alive but in our clown class in in um, grad school it's really about stripping everything away and being sort of you know bare and naked and and you're suffering and finding the humor in, in the tragedy and the pain and the pathos and all that other stuff and, you know, our teacher said something that was really interesting, which is that, yeah, you know, as as clowns, we, we want to find the joy in everything that we do, but you really can't get to the heights of that joy without discovering all this, the deep, the deep, without becoming more acquainted with the deep sort of nasty, gnarly stuff in the basement. So I wonder if, so based on what you're saying, it makes me wonder if our our attraction to the heroic ideal, the heroic archetype is also the flip side of that is this dark this dark underbelly, this dark undercurrent that we're seeing right now. And but you can't a- have it without it. Luke Skywalker right. cannot be Luke Skywalker without the Emperor, right? It's not even Darth Vader, because Darth Vader in many ways is the intermediary, the one he has to save, right? It's, mm. it's the Emperor has to, has to be the adversary. Luke Skywalker cannot be a hero unless the Death Star is constructed, right? And so the moment we're in on an archetypal level is a moment of, of individual heroes living in literally a global communist system now that we're in that we've been in for about 18 months now and uh and it is a unique moment i like to refer to this time as world war three and i'm not being hyperbolic right uh we are at a situation right now where all over the planet the elites have taken control of the media and of the government structures and the bureaucracy and are telling us how to live our most basic levels where we can eat whether we can go outside whether we can get sunlight whether we can breathe right this is a pure war on humanity, in my view, that we're going through. So this is the so what is unique about this is it is not a war between uh between nations. It is a war between classes. And we are and this is the moment where a new kind of hero is about to be born. 
Well, it, you know, it, what's what you're doing by standing strong to your principles is heroic, even though this entire system is saying you're a villain. You know, what's interesting is that um, I recently watched, and I tweeted about this, you probably saw it. I, I watched a Clear and Present Danger recently. Yeah. And one of the things I love about that movie, it's, you know, Jack Ryan as portrayed by Harrison Ford. He's not some combat savvy, strong mm-hmm. man, superhero. He, he, he's not really good at fighting. You know, you don't really see him shooting any weapons. Yeah. Um, you know, he's got some combat experience, but his whole thing is that he's a man of integrity in a system that lacks it completely. It's and that moment his- when he stands to the president and says, how dare you, sir? And the president's yeah. like, how dare you come in barking at me like a junkyard dog? I'm the president of the United States. And his response is, how dare you, sir? Dude, I mean, it's so, it's, it's so great because I was so blown away by it. Just, just that you, could, you can build an entire character around, you know, I'm just not going to lie. And, you know, even to the point I'm going to advise the president to say, like, yeah, I actually do have this connection with this uh, with this criminal who just got caught. And, you know, just don't lie to the press about it. Um, But what I was going to say is that, you know, I think that this is one of the reasons I started this podcast is that we're having conversations like this. We have two artists, you know, we're sensitive people, we're feeling people, we, we observe things. And one of my beefs right now is that we're having all these culture war discussions and we're in this alternative space and you know the intellectual dark web and this that and the third and and it's nice that we're talking about ideas and we're talking about society we're talking about policy uh, economics culture all this all these sorts of things but we're not talking about art and one of the things that, that I thought about what you were saying is that because now we have a lack of familiarity with heroism and what that is we have a disconnection from that subsequently now it seems that we have a corresponding lack of familiarity with what true evil is and what villainy is which is why the communists in china took away the concept of hero so you wouldn't have anything to relate to the concept of evil which is what is happening now in our country and i do not believe it's happening accidentally no i i don't believe that either and 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 it's frustrating because i try to explain to people who are you know we call it team reality as far as you know the, the the whole health situation goes and even they they are so they're so divorced from this idea that people in white lab coats who, you know, perhaps might be octogenarian and maybe have long careers uh, in certain institutions uh, or maybe have billions of dollars, which they give away um, for philanthropic, uh, philanthropic uh, pursuits, that they might have ulterior motives. They, they, they seem to think that evil only exists, you know, amongst carjackers and rapists and murderers. And it's like, well, no, That's you know, maybe, maybe the, the, the embezzler every once in a while. But there is a... I, 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 it's been really frustrating and eye-opening and almost uh, scary to me to see the the, the lack of, of familiarity and saying like, no, this is evil. This is something else that we're that we're talking about here. And the the, the broader point that I'm trying to make is that if we keep on ignoring uh, art in our conversations about the culture, uh, then these are the kinds of consequences that happen. A uh, George Bailey from uh, from It's a Wonderful Life is a hero, but you need to be able to watch it. You know, you know, to understand why he is why he is heroic, and you know, to see people like Andrew Cuomo, for instance, be be bestowed Emmy Award. I mean, you know, he he had to give it back, but. And by the way, I'm a member of the TV Academy. When that happened, I wrote to them. I said, what are you doing here? Of course, no one responded, right? But I was like, this is, what are we doing? This is immoral, right? And a year later, they have to sort of quietly take it away from him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's so the message here that I'm getting across is that, you know, you, you can continue to ignore art and artists at your peril. But the fact of the matter is that, you know, your kids are consuming all of this. Your, your peers and your colleagues are consuming all of this. It's shaping the way they look at the world, it's shaping the way they respond to life. And sometimes 
Um, sometimes it can have very devastating results if you keep ignoring this and you let these other people, I mean, you know, I, I sort of feel like you have no right to complain. This is sort of my beef with more conservative minded people. And, and again, what I was saying before about the hostility against even sort of moderate opinions, I, like, I get that and you want to you want to kind of stay out of it. But at the same time, you know, you 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 can't be so pragmatic all the time and say, well, you know, a career in the arts isn't stable and all those artsy fartsy people are crazy and and then complain that, well, look, look what the libs have done with the arts and, and, and the culture. Well, but you see, this is this is the tragedy that's happened. And look, and one of the I come from a culture which has gone through a very interesting historical uh, challenge with the Gartar. You know, mm-hmm. in the in the most recent generation, I've come I'm born in Pakistan and third world country, you know, decolonized from Britain, a lot of poor people. And so my parents were immigrated from the 70s. They're part of a generation that came here, lost everything, and, and started all over at the bottom in America. And most of my pa- family friends all made sure their kids became doctors. And if they weren't that smart, they'd become engineers, right? But the idea of becoming a screenwriter was not comprehensible to them because they had lost everything to come here. Now, the challenge, and I've had this conversation with Pakistanis and the broader Muslim community, is that Islamic culture has been around for 1,400 years. And for about a thousand of those fourteen hundred years, it was a world dominant civilization through the Arabs, through the, through the Ottoman Turks, right through the Indian Mughals who built the Taj Mahal. And at the times of its height of world dominance was the times when it focused on art and creativity. You know, the Muslim culture created the Taj Mahal. The guitar is an invention of Islamic Spain. It was invented in Malaga, Spain, uh, by by musician who adapted the oud, the traditional Arabic thing. The guitar is a Muslim invention, and these were all these forms of art were you know poetry was advanced by by Islam remarkably. And you have when Islamic culture made art the center of its identity, it was the world's dominant civilization. Mm. When it became practically oriented when you know we started seeing the europeans started getting all this new technology and then they started having military might over the muslim world which had never happened before really and so in instead of trying to focus on developing their art which is where culture's genius comes from they started trying to mimic the west and becoming better with understanding the material world and letting go of the art and they ended up what becoming the servants of the west and become colonized and now you have 200 years of people who've been raised in the muslim culture largely viewing art in the way that many conservatives in America view it as, as something distasteful, something that breeds, you know, bad moral character, or when you go become an artist. And you see the, the, the collapse of the intellectual foundation of those societies, right? Why do you think mm-hmm. Hollywood looks down at, oh, the flyover country, a bunch of dumb people, or whatever, right? And they're not dumb people. However, no. it is because they've allowed, they've allowed the entire artistic conversation to essentially be taken out of their hands right? that the genius of their culture, which is the genius of the founding of America has been eclipsed. Well, you know, and it's, 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 I, I wish, you know, we got about 10 more minutes. I have an appointment, but look, I haven't heard back from my appointment that I have to go. So I'm going to keep going until I hear from them. Is that right. good? Yeah, no, that, that, that's amazing because I, you know, I, everything you just said, you know, completely validates my, my, uh, my point of view about, you know, we can't keep ignoring this stuff. And the, uh, it's not that the other stuff isn't important. It's that this stuff is important too. And- this is the foundational stuff. The, the creativity of a civilization, the artists establish its genius. You know, we look at Einstein. Einstein did not 
intellectually, logically come up with the theory of relativity. He imagined it. In his mm-hmm. own description, he daydreamed what would it be like if I were sitting on a beam of light while holding a flashlight in my hand. And he imagined what it would be like. Would that light outrace that light? And as he imagined it, the theory of relativity came. The, the famous uh, double helix symbol of DNA that Watson and Crick got the Nobel Prize for. Uh, one of them, I, I don't remember if it was Watson or Crick. One of those two gentlemen saw that in a dream. They had been struggling to understand it until one of them saw it in a dream and then drew it out. And then their, their, their research proved that that's actually how the DNA works. It came to him in a dream. So the logical part of the brain is secondary. The genius, the artistic side is the foundation. And then the logic can build on it. Well, you know, and, and I, got I, well, I keep using this quote and partly you know, this might be the, you know, one of maybe I'm going through my own phase of awakening right now. You know, I mean, I, I, are, I, I consider myself you're an to be artist. Pretty- well, you're well, an artist and, and you're an artist that has convinced himself that, that you are a, a logical person when you well, are an artist, which is the genius. Well, see, but, but here's the thing, because and and it's funny because the more I move into the sort of online space and the more I, 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 I gain more independence, I mean, my, my I had very, very good actor training. I went to one of the best conservatories, um, you know, in, in the world. And a lot of that was just about finding, you know, tapping into your own creative individual genius. And, you know, one of the criticisms that I've gotten a lot and I, and I still hold it to myself is I can be pretty much in my head. You know, I, I, I probably overvalue whatever rationality or whatever it is, but now I'm discovering. And I, I go back to this line, um, I was rereading Hamlet, and I reference this a lot, but early in the play, it's right after Hamlet sees um, uh, the ghost of his father, or mm-hmm. a ghost in the form of his father, so to speak. And Hamlet, you know, he's studying at university. His best friend Horatio is a philosopher, a very heady individuals. If you read the play, you see that Hamlet has this unparalleled wit. He's very verbally virtuosic. Um, he's just a brilliant, brilliant guy. But then, at least in my interpretation of it, then he has this encounter with the spiritual realm. And which is like, beyond his realm of which logic. Is, which is beyond his realm of understanding. That, that is a life-changing, inciting incident for Hamlet. And he tells Horatio, there is more, in hev- more between heaven and earth, Horatio, than, is dreamt, than can be dreamt of in your philosophy. That is and a revelatory moment for him. Across time to all of us. Right, you know, and, and, and to me, I'm like, dude, that's what they're, this, this is what, you know, people talk about Hamlet as like, he's, you know, he's this heady guy, he's intellectual. It's like, yeah, he is that, but he's also, he's discovering a whole new realm. And I feel like that's what I'm discovering as well. And I feel like maybe as a culture, we've lost that sense of, you know, we were so caught up in this idea of ourselves as, you know, we're thinkers, we, we're rational, we have this technology and science. And, yada, yada, and, yada, and but, look what has happened. We we're right, living in a yeah. world that's being run by a thousand different little Dr. Mengele's who put, they, they, they are so obsessed with a scientific method. They're not asking is any of this moral? Should we be doing any of these things? But well, we can do them. It's, it's but that doesn't mean we should be doing them. Well, yeah, well you, you said it yourself, and this has been one of my things from the very beginning as well, which is it's, it's a loss of humanity. Everything that we're being asked to do, to do right now is anti-human. It's anti-connection. It's anti-what uh, what it means to be alive. It, it's anti-all these things we experience. And, and it's the things that we can't really articulate or quantify, right? It's We're denying people first loves. We're denying celebrations after work. We're denying, we're denying community. We're, yeah. we're, I mean, we're denying each other's faces. In the Islamic tradition, the Prophet Muhammad said, you know, even, even a smile is charity. If you have no money to give a poor person, smile at them. When I see homeless person, mm. I don't have to give them, I smile. And their eyes light up because everyone ignores them. We're not even giving each other the gift of a smile. Right. We've disconnected. We, I hear all these logical arguments about why you don't need to see another human being's face. 
That is our basic connection with humanity. And people yeah. are saying, children don't need to see faces. You don't need to see faces. You should, you could, I mean, what's wrong with you? Are you so weak-minded that you need to see a human being's face? No, it's part of the foundation. It's part of, of life. Sick. It's part of life and connecting with other people. And I feel, and, and given everything we've talked about here, it makes me wonder if we had a culture that was more in touch with its artistic side, with, with its artistic genius, if they would be more sensitive to that. Wait a minute, maybe the costs of covering up our faces. I mean, you know, and I would have this encounter with people in New York. There was an older woman. She, you know, I think she was in her 60s, maybe, maybe, um, maybe early 70s. We're in the Upper West Side. And I'm walking around, one of the few people at the, at the time, walking around New York City without a mask on because, you know, I, I don't trust the science, obviously. And, we, you know, she sees the me. Actual, all the actual science shows masks don't stop viruses. But that's, we'll have that. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, she herself had her mask. You know, it, it was basically a chin warmer for her. And it was hot outside. The sun was out. Yeah. And we made eye contact. And one of the things I love about New York, at least I love about what I, I call it the city formerly known as New York, because it's not I'm New York City anymore. It's that. not. Um, but she looked at me, I looked at her, and I was kind of smiling. And she just goes, she was like, it's so great to see somebody smiling. I can't breathe in this thing. And she just wanted to connect with somebody else. And I'm thinking to myself, what are we doing depriving ourselves of these kinds of interactions on a day-to-day basis? And for our children, for children to, to, oh, to see that. But now, this is the most horrible thing. You know, I study history and you go to these historical moments, such as the moments, uh, you know, you know, we now have documented that in ancient Peru, there were child sacrifices. We found the mummies of these children that were sacrificed. And, you know, throughout mm-hmm. the Middle East, the Bible talks about it. I mean, there was, you know, sacrificing children of Moloch existed throughout the Middle East. Burning your own child on a sacrificial fire was a part of Middle Eastern culture, pre-biblical, that the Bible and then the Quran arise to critique. Right. And you're thinking, what kind of monsters would sacrifice their children? And we're seeing them. We're seeing them today. They're our neighbors. You know, at each time we look at history, whenever a culture has, has put the needs of the older generation and its fears over the needs of the younger generation and its future, that culture is about to collapse. What happened in ancient Peru? It's what happened in the Middle East. It, it's what happened throughout history. We are at that moment where people, where I hear the argument. Children should have this thing injected into them because, yes, all right, fine. I'll admit that children aren't really at danger from this thing. Flu is more dangerous than this virus to them. But they might give it to their teacher who might die. So the teacher's life is more important than a five-year-old child's life, right? That's the, a civilization literally about to go over the cliff. And we've seen it throughout history. When the, child is, when the child's needs are put beneath the needs of the adult, the civilization is finished. Well, I mean, I have three things to say in response to that. One, you know, I have an actor friend who um, he's in his late sixties, and uh, and we were talking about this, and he said, he's like, he's like, well, you know, it's one thing for me, you know, I'm kind of at the end of the line anyway, and um, it, it's 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 fine, I'm pretty much retired anyway. But he's like, Clifton, guys like you who are still young, who are in the thick of it, um, you know, I'm I'm really I'm disappointed for guys like you who this isn't fair to people like you. And I was like, thanks, you know, finally somebody. Finally, somebody says it. Um, too much. The second thing is that it's so bizarre to me because I, I I don't have any kids, but I was a kid once, and I'm like, do you not remember what it was like uh, uh, to be a kid? And and you know, why are you stifling all of that? And and I I began to get a sense that something was deeply deeply wrong when you would see these stories that were coming out about you know kids who were hanging themselves days before their 14th birthday parties and you know if that and 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 then they people would turn around and maybe it's crazy twitter sphere but people would turn around and say well what was wrong with it what was wrong with uh, with their household 
What was wrong with the way they were being raised? What was wrong with the, the parenting? So you're blaming uh, the, the parents for, you, you can't blame the politicians, you can't blame the, the policy, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm thinking to myself, if you're unmoved by these kinds of stories, then there's, we're no longer operating in the realm of logic and something else is, um, is, is taking over. And I don't, I don't even know what it well, is. There, What's, there, what is there, there's some, but the fact is this happened throughout history. There, there is within the human condition, there is evil. It exists. There is pathology and evil is linked to fear. Evil and fear, they originate from the same energy, right? And mm-hmm. so a, a person that would sacrifice their own child, the person would burn it to Moloch, right? Or the person that would inject a child with an experimental drug in the hopes that it might not, they might save their adult's life, right? That's coming from that place of evil that is something deeply, deeply unique about the human condition. Other animals don't destroy their children. They might have destroyed the children of a rival, like a lion will eat them. Yeah, the alpha, of a rival. Yeah. But they, the species is attempting to propagate. We are the only species that has an element within it that is self-destructive. It is very unique. And That's, I think it comes from the development of our logical side. When we're disconnected from the, our intuitive understanding of the cosmos, which animals have, right? I believe religion arose in order to reconnect us to that intuitive cosmos. I believe, believe it's a methodology for that purpose. And I say that as a religious person, right? And people who are disconnected from the methodology uh, and even the need to be connected to that, all they have is their logic. And their logic is ultimately comes down to, well, I don't believe in any life beyond this. And I need to preserve my life and my children. The species doesn't matter. I need to live. Well, see, what, what, what the strange thing about that is that I, I don't, I don't buy the excuse from more secular people of like, oh, you know, and I used to understand that. It's like, oh, you know, the universe, you know, Big Bang, and it's all kind of random and chaotic, and there's really no meaning in everything, which is a really depressing way of looking at things. But I've been of the opinion that, well, that that means that the onus is is on you then to decide what your life is going to mean. I mean, and, but it's it's this idea of you're, you're, you're taking on something that is larger than yourself. I mean, reading, Mm -hmm. it was such a joy. um, I discovered these in grad school, but reading, um, like the work of uh, of Anton Chekhov, the great Russian playwright, and uh, he wrote a play called Three Sisters. And uh, there's a, a character named, named Rashinin who's kind of funny because he goes on and on. He talks about the future, yada yada yada. But but it was so refreshing. And uh, Uncle Vanya has some of this as well, where you see these people who are who are pontificating about what's going, what life is going to be like a hundred years from now, two hundred years from now. And I just wonder what it. it uh, no, my thing is that it, it, just because you don't believe in life after death, you don't believe in God, it doesn't give you an excuse to just be, you know, in the moment and not leave anything uh, behind. It doesn't it doesn't give you an excuse. You don't get a free pass and not uh, taking on something larger than yourself. I think that's one of the reasons people well, like because, Jordan Peterson you have morality. Then. You're not a nihilist. Right. And that's why when you say an atheist, the way I define the word atheism is you don't have a specific religion or, or necessarily believe a specific dogma. But it's very clear to me in my interaction with them that, and you even begin to use the word, that you are spiritual. Anyone who is spiritual, who has a sense of intuitive morality, which you do, is not how I would define an atheist. It may not be how you define it, and, but I would define the nihilist you're describing as that because they are, a Sufi master once said, no one is actually an atheist. Because then they deny everything. They deny even their own existence, their own consciousness, right? It's all about how the word is defined. But the closest thing to it is this nihilism, which you and I are both critiquing. Well, you know, I, I, uh, I keep referencing this conversation because it's, it's on my brain. But um, again, I was talking to, uh, to Salome about this. And I said, you know, what, what's interesting to me is that 
you know, we talk, we were talking about art versus entertainment. And I think that's sort of a, another can of worms, um, maybe another podcast and entirely in and of itself. But I, you know, one of my, one of the reasons that I sort of glommed on to a lot of these YouTube genre channels is that they have a keen sense of like, no, this is supposed to be escapism and you're, and you're injecting this social engineering nonsense into it that we don't really want. And I, I sort of hit on this discovery or epiphany for myself, which is that all this nihilism uh, in a way, it's just another form of escapism. Yeah. It's it's allowing it's it's they're distancing themselves either you know via their intellect or <laughs> possibly mind altering drugs substances. Um, they're insulating themselves from some some of the harsher realities of life and our mort- or our mortality, all the things that we don't want to think about, even maybe the presence of evil. Um, y- you you can and comment on it. You can make a snarky remark about it. You can be like, oh, no, none of this matters, but. If none of it, if nothing matters, then just go die. What's the point of everything? Yeah, so it's, it's like everybody. And the reality is, we're seeing people that actually do now are acting out that philosophy where none of it matters except me, right? Which is mm. right? And we're seeing that on a national and global scale, the outcome of this paradigm. We're seeing people actually embracing that. We never thought they would until the the, the social political structure gave them the freedom to be that person. And we're seeing it now. And it's a horrible, horrible world. It's a world that in an effort to escape death has made life death, has taken away life itself, has taken away the enjoyment of life, has taken away breath, freedom of... There's any human right, it's to breathe. There's any human right, it's to breathe freely. There's no other right. You don't have the right to speak. You have the right to breathe, right? And we had... And society now tells us that is selfish. That is where this pathology leads you to. And, it, and the good thing is it, it cannot be sustained. It cannot be sustained because there are fundamental, even if one does not believe in a deity, there are fundamental laws to nature, right? And, a, and, a, and any species that wishes to restrict itself from breathing and wishes to sacrifice its next generation will not survive. Yeah. That's the law of basic evolutionary nature. And this paradigm cannot survive. Well, you know, well, it's a nice segue into, you know, what's next. You referenced this mm-hmm. uh, early on. Um, you know, I said because of certain medical uh, decisions that I've yeah. made, uh, I won't get into detail. I mean, I'm sure um, a lot of my listeners People will be able to figure it out between the lines. But, um, you know, my, my thing is, is there is there a, a, a place, it's kind of a two-pronged question in a way. Is there a time where all of this mania will die down? Because just, just as, as a small example, um, I, I can't say that I am, that there isn't a bit of schadenfreude uh, mm-hmm. uh, motivating my observations on what's happening in New York City right now with um, with what's going on on Broadway, yeah. because and the restaurants are, are regrettably collapsing. Yeah. Well, well, here's the thing: because in order to work on Broadway, it's been determined by the Broadway League and by the unions that you must have taken the injection. If you work backstage, if you work on stage, everyone in that building under the employ of that theater or that production company, what have you, has to have taken the uh, the shot, and. I'm saying to myself, okay, well, if you are if you're working in a for-profit commercial market, which is Broadway, where you heavily rely on tourist dollars, either domestic or foreign tourism, um, I don't understand how it is that uh, excluding or barring large portions of not only your you know the New York audience but the United States audience or the international audience from coming to your show is going to be helpful for your business model going forward. Secondly, you have all, they have all these ridiculous protocols and rules and strictures in place. Um, when we know that these inject, you know, they're leaky uh, injections, shall, shall well, we say? They're, you know, they're, and, 
we're reading every day in the trades where someone in Hollywood is having a heart attack all of a sudden on set or, or people that have had double double shots are suddenly dying. You know, it's like, okay. Well, they're not working that well. <laughs> well and, and here's the thing. It's like, like there, there, will there, there must come a point. And, and this is where, where the two prongs of this question come for, because on one sense, it's, it's a cultural question. It's what's, what is the future of the industry and our art and our art, our, our craft, our vocation, but also just in the, in the immediate sense, it's, you know, they have to see at a certain point. And uh, like there were, there was an email that was sent out, um, uh, to other actors equity members for those who don't know actors equity association is the uh, the union for stage actors and uh, one of their members that sent out this really angry email about you know we're, producers are are um, they are proposing that we do fewer shows per week which means we get paid less you know so normally broadway performers do eight shows a week um you know it can be a very grueling schedule depending on the intensity of the work that you're being called upon to do but you know as low as six shows i'm like well maybe these producers are better economists than these stupid actors are and they're reading the tea leaves and they're saying what i'm saying which is like okay well we're barring huge numbers of people we're imposing these restrictions on them um in in order to come to the theater we're probably not going to be having sold out houses for quite some time. So maybe we should try to, you know, curb some of our expenses. Um, but it's all, it's all in the service of saying, this is not sustainable. It's clearly not sustainable. All these mandates that, that you're putting in practice, they not only, they're, destro- they're going to destroy the industry. And, yeah. and, and they're, the they're, they're ruining the audience. Um, I mean, they're talking about no backstage visits. That's what you do at a Broadway show. You, 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 do, you, you go to the stage. Yeah, door, that's you, the whole joy of it, the connection. That's, with the, that's with the joy the of it. And, and they're saying, no, none of that. I'm like, you people, this, this, is, this is why I say, why integrate into a burning house? Why do I want to work with people who have been so frivolous with what we do and with, you know, I love that you wrote about, you know, we're here to serve the audience. We're here to serve them. They paid all this money to come and see these performances and you're you're telling them that they have to wear a mask. They have to have this shot. They can't even, you know, go backstage and see their favorite performers. They can't sign playbills or whatever. Um, Why you're you're so anti, you're you're such anathema to what it is that I do. The entire experience, the human experience of this, of this ancient craft that goes back to the Greeks and probably thousands of years, thousands of years. And you and you are willing to throw it all away. So I guess my question, my final question is, you know, what is the future now? Because we've seen, as you've said, the masks are off. I'm like, you people don't really care about theater. You don't care about the art. You don't care about you don't care about. Uh, what you do as much as this gym owner or this hair salon owner or this restaurant owner who's been fighting their tooth and nail, their government uh, to, to just to be able to put food on their table and keep their, their employees paid, you know, through, through a, a hard time. So is, is this mania going to break? Do, do you think, because it is unsustainable in my opinion, but also what is the future as far as the arts? Because I feel like people like you and I, we see the value in connecting with the, the Jeremy's of geeks and gamers with the Gary's from nerd erotic. And I, I see the value in saying, these are my potential fans and they're very smart. They're very savvy. They know what they like and what they don't like. They're very articulate about explaining these th- kinds of things, but yet Hollywood, uh, you know, in our industry at large keeps saying, well, these people, they, they don't deserve to be listened to. They're part of the problem. They're uh, they're a toxic fandom, so on and so forth. And so, uh, I, I see the way that people like Tim Pool are undermining the sort of journalistic aspect of things. But now, you know, I, well, I and, wonder. And, and Gina Carano is one of the one of the more courageous performers who's out there willing to go against the system. Right. So I'm going to answer yeah. the second part of your question first, and I'll, then I'll close out with the first part. Second sure. part being talking about the future in the sense of YouTube and, and all the social media 
reorganization of economics of what we do mm-hmm. and then can hollywood sustain itself in the current path so let's answer the first uh, the second Amazing. part first, which is you know i have i'm an example of that I, you know as you know i recently about about 4 weeks ago created a patreon and as of today i have nearly 100 patreon subscribers right within just a few weeks and for patreon that's actually very rapid and i had resisted people said to me about a year ago you know, Cameron, you know, the industry's kind of shut down. Nobody's really working. You got a bit of a following on, you know, you go on these YouTube channels like, like, you know, Geeks and Gamers and, and Midnight's Edge and Doomcock, you know, maybe, maybe people would support you uh, as an artist. And I said, uh, and I had that Hollywood arrogance. of so like, uh, that's, that's not what I'm here to write screenplays. I'm not going to do that. Right. It's, I don't know what that's all about. Right. Uh, and then it struck me. It just struck me uh, literally on August 24th, which is the day I created my Patreon. I woke up in the morning and I said, create a Patreon. I was like, why do those words come out of my mouth? Right. And I was thinking about it and I said, you know what? What the hell? Why not? Let me just, why not? I'd resisted it for some time out of that Hollywood ego. Right. And then mm-hmm. I created it only to discover that I was super, delighted to see people who I don't know who any of them are. People from Austria, people from Australia, people from all the world are signing up for this thing. And they're giving me essentially donations, which are helping me have money in my, uh, in my bank account, which gives me strength to survive this industry, right? And also I provide them my unique analysis of Hollywood, but some things I can't always say you know, on camera publicly, I can do for these private subscribers. And now I've created a community that that's very intimate and it's growing every day. So I think more and more people will figure out that the future of arts, entertainment, and connection is going to be to access these new avenues you know, I figured it out. I resisted and I figured it out. You're here. You're creating a podcast, which is getting your your name out there and satisfying a lot of people who are going to want to see more things from you, right? Yeah. And Gina Carano is the example of a woman who stood up to the Hollywood system, lost a job, and then went on to have a career. And she's very good at utilizing social media to add, to wake up and encourage her fan base to come to their to her support against the system. Johnny Depp is doing that. Johnny Depp is brilliantly doing that where the system has essentially taken the side of his ex-wife for, I think, some right. very shady, nefarious reasons, which you don't need to get into. I, I think most people in Hollywood know exactly who Amber Heard is and what her moral character is, but she has, let's just say, leverage on a lot of people in the industry. And so they're continuing to support her out of fear that she will reveal certain things that she knows. Whereas she Johnny will Depp, shit in your bed next, folks. I am, and she'll release some <laughs> photos and other things. Yeah. Other things that you know of of uh, you know that would hurt some people's reputations, so they'll yeah. keep hiring her out of terror of that leverage. Uh, and so, Johnny Depp. If Johnny Depp started a GoFundMe page for a movie, like he's essentially been blacklisted from Hollywood for the time being, for the time being, right? Mm-hmm. I believe eventually will come back in full glory. But if he started a GoFundMe page today, it would be financed by the end of the day. Yeah. He'd have twenty, thirty, forty million dollars from average people all over the planet that would finance his next movie, right? And he can, and one day he may do that. He's certainly the kind of person that Gina Carano could do that if she wanted to. So, but, you know, it's all of us have to sort of get out of one way of thinking that I've been thinking in 20 years where my money comes from the studio system, right? And my prestige comes from being accepted by that system to now being understand that I'm being able to directly access my fans like you're doing. And that is a good thing. Like I have my third novel, which has not yet been published. My first two novels were published by Simon & Schuster. My third novel, I'm now releasing it chapter by chapter on Patreon. And people are reading it and they're liking it. I don't have mm. to wait. I don't have to wait for my agent to sell it to a publisher. I have fan base for it already. I'm going to them directly. And so I'm there. So that hopefully will answer where I think people will more and more artists. And I think it will be independent thinking artists like Johnny Depp, like Gina Crano, like yourself, like myself, that will access this system. Those whose bread is still buttered by the studio system will continue to d- stay on that path probably long after it's died because they don't know what else to do. Right. Mm. And, you know, and they've come to see 
that this social media system and the YouTubes and all this are beneath us. Well, beneath us, that's, they're paying people, man. <laughs> beneath us, at the end of the day, they're, they're your audience and they're paying you. So, so that's it. Now, with, but what does that mean for Hollywood in general? Now, uh, the broader issue of Hollywood is that the industry is collapsing. And I say that with, with, that, you know, with sadness because I didn't come here to watch the industry collapse. Like I said, you've been working for years. None of us came here to watch the world crash around us. No. <laughs> we didn't become artists. We could have both been successful mainstream workers in another industry with a more stable income and a life. We didn't sacrifice that stability to then arrive in this town and watch the whole thing burn down by its own stupidity. But that's where we are, right? And it is burning down. Personally, because I've been a little bit known as the seer in Hollywood, particularly in Midnight Edge, I give a lot of predictions that tend to come true. Mm. This is going to be a tragic prediction. I think that the industry is going to take this all the way, theater and movies, is going to take this all the way to the point that it actually is going to approach bankruptcy and maybe even get, get to it. I think that, and the other aspect of it is there's reasons why people are resisting these medical compulsions that are being put on people right now because they are concerned that it will lead to bad outcomes health-wise for them. Mm-hmm. I believe that is likely for many people. We're already beginning to see that even if the new mainstream media wasn't reporting it, we're getting enough reports from our own personal lives of people that have taken this thing and it's not worked out well for them, right? Uh, and we're, you know, we're hearing these things in our personal lives. Eventually, it's going to get to a place where even if the media deadline and variety never report that actors are dying left and right after being forced to do this, you're just going to know that the actor is dead. It's not there anymore, right? And we're hearing more about it in the trades, you know, and it's tragic. I think especially when they compel, when they get to the point where we're reaching that point where basically, like I said, people are being compelled on set to do these things, right? Mm-hmm. Within a year, the ramifications of this untested thing will present themselves. And there will be some very tragic ramifications on a very practical level for the industry of people's lives. When that happens, when you have financial collapse and the loss of major people who virtue signal their way to their doom, then at that very bottom will the industry begin to reassess the cost of that. But right now they're hiding that cost with, with propaganda through the trades and by creating this culture where we cannot publicly say what people are feeling in their hearts, right? And mm-hmm. so that the only the end result will be the consequence will come. You can, you know, that are things you can you can you can av- avoid reality as much as you want, but you cannot avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. And so those economic and medical consequences will come. And that is the only way the industry will have to will be able to learn this. When people's lie, when the industry, when the rich people in the uh, that I talk about in in their gated mansions, when they're getting sick and dying, when they're losing their money and their hot trophy wife leaves them because they no longer are rich and powerful because multiple productions are shut down because of all the virtue signaling rules they put in to the point that they bankrupted themselves, then they'll have no choice but to reassess. That's we're talking. I think within a year, within one very painful year. We will see that play out. I believe 2022 will be the year where those practical consequences will play out in the industry and we'll be at a very crisis point. And then I think 2023 will be the reboot time. I think if you can, if you can weather it out, uh, if you still have an interest a year from now on being on traditional sets, I think those rules will be gone because people will have destroyed themselves from them. Well, you know, in, in the meantime, you, who wants to wait a year for all that to happen? Uh, I, know, and it'd be a horrific year if, if it were what I'm describing, yes. Well, yeah, no, I've, 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 believe me, I've been having the same conversations with people. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I smile about it, but I, you know what I keep saying over and over again is this is what they wanted. 
this is this is the world they wanted to create, and they'll have to deal with the consequences of that world. Um, and it you know, won't normally- be a world that anyone wants. Even these idiots, and we we can don't have to name them, but these idiots, these wealthy billionaires that have been saying publicly, the world is overpopulated. You you're gonna get your depopulated world. You ain't gonna like it either. All your servants are gone. You ain't gonna have enough people to build and fix your robots that you thought were gonna replace the the, the stupid masses you were gonna kill off. It's gonna suck for you too, man. <laughs> Well, you know, it's uh, normally we like to end these things. I guess the tradition is that uh, you have to leave it on a, on a high note. And we but... will. The high note is it's, I believe humanity will come out of the stronger. I believe that. And art will become out of the stronger. I believe that. Well, I certainly hope so, because I think one thing that despite all of the, the darkness and, uh, you know, the unmasking that I've discovered is that I know that I can't be, I can't be the only person who has reassessed what their life and what their life, what their life means to them, and what's mm-hmm. important to them, and you know, I, I was sitting up in New York City for the first few weeks, and there was a point where I, I didn't, I didn't shower for at least a month, and I mean, it was pretty bad, and and You're I was probably like, depressed because of all these events. Well, I lost out on a couple of gigs, one of which would have really, really helped my career, and I was I like, had a couple well, of those lost too, so I am. Know. Am I not essential at all? Like, what's the point of all this? I, I don't matter. I've been spending all this time being an actor and doing well for myself, but I don't, I don't have any practical, like, there's nothing. So then what is, what is the, the deeper meaning of all of these things? And, and what is the point of all of this? And, I, and I'm sure a lot of people, I mean, I, I speak to older mentors of mine in the industry, and they say, yeah, a lot of my friends, they're kind of ducking out too. They're, they're saying to themselves, well, you know, I'm not going to pursue the work as much as I did. You know, these are like decorated directors who are saying this and they're, they're going on different paths. And so maybe, maybe the, it's going to be the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel that I'm, that I'm talking around is this idea that the more, and you referenced this before as well, the more free thinking, more independent minded, more disagreeable people, while this broader, bigger established system is we're watching it collapse the people like ourselves are saying, well, we're going to work on building something new. And what's what's been so heartening to me about it, you, you reference how, you know, you, you've, you've gotten support. I mean, I've been posting up Shakespeare videos, mm-hmm. Shakespeare videos, and mm-hmm. I've still had people come to me and say, I want more of this. And so to me, and I go back to what I was saying before, where, like, where the audiences now are more savvy than the people who are who are pandering, who are, you know, uh, putting out this content that's supposed to appeal yeah, to them. Denigrating their audience. Yes, they're denigrating. And, you know, and. But these these conservatives, these libertarians, so on and so forth, even if they don't, they've never stepped foot in a theater in their lives, they're still coming to me. They're messaging me. They're leaving comments and saying, like, I really, really enjoyed this discussion. I really, really enjoyed this work. Hey, you know, can you I remember when I read this in high school, maybe you can do this speech. I'm like people are engaging with it. And it just says to me that people want this. They they want more great work they you know it, it just has to be great work and people are are able to get it i mean i've been in audiences myself where you know you have teenagers who are vibing out to brecht of all people so it is possible to put to 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 uh to make i guess you know may, maybe maybe we're talking about more of a, a popular or populist art revolution maybe the term popular culture is going to is is turning uh, is gaining a new well, meaning. It's going to right become now. literal now because popular culture was a culture defined by the elites in the past. They served it, mm. right? Now this will actually be ground up. And that is why I believe we're actually entering a wonderful golden age for humanity when we get through this garbage. We have to deconstruct this world. Remember that the Renaissance was born in a time of great chaos. Uh, Italy 
you had Leonardo da Vinci's primary job was working as a war engineer. That's how he paid his bills, right? Because there were wars. Italy was a, the central Italian state, the Roman Empire was gone and the central Italian state had collapsed. It had war in principalities. It was the most chaotic time uh, in, in Italy's history. And all these great artists, uh, uh, da Vinci, Michelangelo, thrived and created a new form of art at a time when they didn't know if they'd be alive the next day. It's hard for us to imagine. They weren't living easy lives. They were living a fearful world that was consumed by essentially feudal lords killing each other. And the Renaissance is that. Look what it produced. We're about to do that on a global scale.